Hello and welcome to the Line by Line podcast. It couldn't be simpler. Two guests look at three pieces of writing and we talk about them. It's a podcast about what's on the lines and what's between them, how the words a writer chooses and the exact order in which they place them really matter. Good writers learn that the hard way by rewriting and rewriting. And that's why they almost always make the best readers. They know how sentences fit together. Today, I'm joined by two very good writers, Irena Sonokogie, an award-winning novelist and short story writer who recently won the Kane Prize for African Writing for her short story Grace Jones, and the journalist and broadcaster Helen Lewis, currently a staff writer for The Atlantic magazine. Her most recent book is Difficult Women, A History of Feminism in Eleven Fights. Hi, Helen. Hello. And Hello. The guests get the text we're going to talk about in advance, but they get them blind, and that's initially how we'll talk about them. For anyone who doesn't recognise the writers of our extracts or doesn't manage to guess who they are, I'll reveal the authors a little way into our discussion. It's not a trick, this. It's just a way of avoiding the distraction of reputation, for a time at least. And you'll hear a reading of each text before we start. And since this is the very first of these podcasts, we're going to start with beginnings. All the pieces you'll hear today are opening pages. First up is this opening to a 1960 novel. Get away from here, you dirty swine, she said. There's a dirty swine in every man, he said. Showing your face round here again, she said. Now, Mavis, now, Mavis, he said. She was seen to slam the door in his face, and he to press the bell, and she to open the door again. I want a word with Dixie, he said. Now, Mavis, be reasonable. My daughter, Mavis said, is not in. She slammed the door in his face. All the same, he appeared to consider the encounter so far satisfactory. He got back into the little fiat and drove away along the grove and up to the common where he parked outside the Rye Hotel. Here he lit a cigarette, got out and entered the saloon bar. Three men of retired age at the far end turned from the television and regarded him. One of them nudged his friend. A woman put her hand to her chin and turned to her companion with a look. His name was Humphrey Place. He was that fellow that walked out on his wedding a few weeks ago. He walked across to the white horse and drank one bitter. Next he visited the Morning Star and the Heat and Arms. He finished up at the Harbinger. The pub door opened and Trevor Lomas walked in. Trevor was seen to approach Humphrey and hit him on the mouth. The barmaid said, Outside, both of you! It wouldn't have happened if Dougal Douglas hadn't come here, a woman remarked. So, Helen, we are, I mean, the first thing to say is we are in media race, aren't we? As the technical term has it, we're sort of plunged straight into it. What's your first impression from this opening the first things that i picked up is the fact that the you know there's a difference between writers breaking the rules because they don't know them and breaking the rules for effect and i felt that repetition of get away from here you dirty swine there's a dirty swine in every man he said you know to to have that emphasis of repetition is ugly and also the words don't really one thing doesn't really follow from another um i thought was that immediately sets you up with feeling this has got some of the ugliness of, of everyday life and everyday speech, you know, the kind of the fact it's not polished and perfect. And then you straight away get away, get Mavis as a name. And this to me is the clue that this is not something written now about the middle of the 20th century, but something at the time. It's now, now Mavis has now become such a kind of 
Coronation Street kind of comic name that it's it you, you'd bump on it now, but it's used unselfconsciously. And then the third thing, just in those very first lines, was she was seen to slam the door in his face. It's such a peculiar construction. It's like a police notebook, you know, putting it in this passive tense. It's as you say, it's a it's a police constable opening his notebook up. Yeah. Um, and that's so immediately, those are the things that I noticed in that, just in that very first section, you've got some very, and, and the he said, she said, he, she said, he said, you know, the, the emphasis of that and the, the kind of deliberate ugliness of it was quite striking. Irenison, there is that, isn't there? It's not an attempt at um, a graceful opening, this. Yeah, for sure. I thought it was a very funny opening line. I immediately chuckled. I, I was just struck by the word swine. And that really stayed with me. Um, you know, as Helen mentioned, like the ugliness of it, the sort of realness and rawness of it as well um, as a description. Um, but also, I felt like it it opens you up as a reader, that line. I felt very excited by the possibilities of where the story would go. Um, so you you immediately know you've stepped into an argument, um, obviously, with that line as well. Um, and I think it sort of prefaces um, a punchy paced, a fast paced opening, um, which I quite like. So I, as a writer, I like that it's dialogue driven. Um, and as a reader, I was really intrigued just by that sort of yeah, the kind of drama that you get straight away and you're immediately pulled in. Do you think it matters that a reader knows what's going on in the opening? I mean, uh, readers sometimes get anxious in the opening lines of a, a book. They want to know where they are. This one, this one deliberately wrong foots you, it seems to me. Well, as a writer, as someone who's a fan of disconcerting the reader, I quite like that it that it does that because you're just immediately uncomfortable. You know, you you start to imagine context already, I think. Like, where are we? Like, what's happened before and why is this happening? So uh, for me, it, it works really nicely that it, it doesn't, you know, you don't go in sort of being spoon fed in terms of like plot. You're dropped right in it, um, I think, um, as an opening. And I think it works quite nicely. Um, the, I thought the, there's something interesting about the was seen because that makes the timing of all of this fluid. Um, Helen? It's a masterclass in delivering a huge amount of information in a very short time. So you already know that this is the mother of a daughter whom he has wronged, presumably because of the words dirty swine sexually in some way. And then there's a bit where actually just the way that the words are separated. My daughter, Mavis said, is not in. There's an implicit you know, drawing herself up to her full height kind of, you know, haughtiness to that, isn't it? It's a, it's a kind of lower middle class woman putting on her H's in order to send him on his way. And so you immediately get a huge amount of kind of class. That's a lovely observation because of, you've had all of those she said, he said, she said at the end of the line. And then she suddenly... I've given away something there. This is a woman writer. Uh, she suddenly sticks Mavis said into the middle of the piece of dialogue. And you're absolutely right, I think, that that's what it does. It gives you a little sort of moment of physical uh, perception without actually describing anything at all. It gives you a, like, never in my life have I been so offended, sir, kind of tone to it, without, you know, ever having to write that into the words, which is really clever. Um, Irenison, the, um, there's a dirty swine in every man, that sort of huge generalisation, which follows the very specific accusation. I mean, she's only accusing him. And he enlarges it to sort of say, well, you know, <laughs> it's the way life is. Um, we're all like that. I think that's very funny. And then, and then to the now Mavis, now Mavis. Yeah, he justifies it, doesn't he? He justifies it. He says, well, you know, 
<laughs> this is what men are like. Um, so, you know, he's not the only person guilty of, you know, whatever bad behaviour he's been accused of. Um, and there's something very funny about the way that line is delivered, I think. Renison, I, I wanted to ask about this business of a reader rereading stories. I was very struck when I reread your story, Grace Jones, recently. And the first time you read, can I read the opening? You don't mind if I read the opening to that story, do you? Oh, sure. And it goes like this. Once the stray parts of a singed scene had found their way into the bedroom, onyx edges gleaming and the figures without memories had lost their molten heads to the coming morning, after she'd pressed her face against the space under the doorway, crying, reaching for some untouched handful of earth as sustenance, the agency called. Hassan, more specifically. First time I read that. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be the longest sentence in the world, I think. <laughs> it's, a long, it's a long sentence, but it's doing a lot because the first time you read it, you think, I have no idea what's going on here. You know, the, how, do, how, does the, how do the stray parts of a singe scene have onyx edges? When you've read the whole story, I mean, one, I think you recognise, I, I think you would have recognised if you read carefully that this is somebody waking up. And so the sentence itself wakes up until it's fully awake on the word specifically. Everything has come crystal clear by that point. And it starts with this, you know, melee of, of sensations and, and perceptions. But when you've read the, the whole story and you go back, it completely makes a different sense. Um, how, how conscious are you when you're, when you're crafting a story? of creating those effects. That's really interesting that you say that because I think I sort of follow my instincts um, as a writer. And of course, Grace Jones is about fires, um, in particular, a very a traumatic past fire. So um, when you read the whole story, that that opening does make sense because there are image there are images in it that that I think encapsulate um, elements of a fire and you know moltenness and um, decay and it's really alive as well. But also the sensation of somebody who's struggling um, mentally, I think, um, waking up as well. So it's it's trying to do a lot within a couple of sentences, which I often am guilty of doing. It's just like jam packing lots of different sensations. <laughs> into into like a couple of sentences um but I think I also just I really want the writing to feel um evocative and alive uh, so I think I'm I'm really conscious of using like striking imagery um in my work so hence hence the reasons for those um images in the opening lines let me tell you who this piece is by it's by Muriel Spark and it's the Ballad of Peckham Rye oh that's really interesting because I just read um the Girls of Slender Means, which is another um, Muriel Spark, very short um, Muriel Spark. And, and I wouldn't have necessarily put the writer of that together with this because that's got a lot more bluntness in it and is a lot less comic. I, In my mind, I'd got this wrong. I'd sort of pegged this in a kind of Kingsley Amos sphere. Well, it, yes, that's not wrong, I think. Um, it's got that feel to it. Um, I mean, obviously, it is literally wrong because it's not Kingsley Amos, it's Muriel Spark. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> Um, but I think that that sort of um, you're, you're in, you know, the writing is definitely in that area. OK, let's um, listen to the second extract that I sent you. In the mid 70s, a young man named Geoffrey Musayef Masson began to appear at psychoanalytic congresses and to draw a certain perplexed attention to himself. He was an analyst in training at the Toronto Institute of Psychoanalysis. 
but he wasn't like the other analytical candidates one sees at congresses. Quiet and serious and somewhat cowed-looking young psychiatrists who stand about together like shy, plain girls at dances, talking to one another with exaggerated animation. Masson, to continue the metaphor, not only assiduously steered clear of the wallflowers, but was dancing with some of the most attractive and desirable partners at the ball. With well-known senior analysts, such as Samuel Lipton, of Chicago, Brian Bird, of Cleveland, Edward Weinshell, and the late Victor Califf, of San Francisco, and, the greatest catch of all, K.R. Eisler, of New York. Masson was lively, inquisitive, brash, very talkative, anything but cowed. He was not a psychiatrist, but a Sanskritist. He had become a tenured associate professor of Sanskrit at the University of Toronto at the age of 30. By 35, he was a full professor. And he gave off a sheen of intellectual big time that even those who disliked him from the start were grudgingly impressed by. He was good-looking in a boyish, dark, mildly near-eastern way. The photographs of Masson that were presently to appear in the Times, Newsweek and Time made him look more exotic than he does in life, and a bit plump and spoiled. At the congresses, Masson would sometimes be accompanied by his wonderfully intelligent, thin, elegant, mockingly witty wife, Terry. She stood out from the wives of analysts as Masson stood out from his fellow candidates. Victor Kalev, in recalling his first meeting with the dazzling Massons at a congress of the International Psychoanalytical Association in Paris in 1973, spoke of them as if speaking of the young Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald. They were so beautiful, so brilliant, so delicious, Califf recalled, and felt compelled to add, she was smart as a whip. At the Paris Congress, Masson read a paper criticising Eric Erickson's book on Gandhi, a paper that was much admired and was subsequently published in the International Journal of Psychoanalysis. While other candidates were still copying out exercises with inky fingers, Masson, with irritating precocity, was already delivering and publishing papers. The following year, at the spring meeting of the American Psychoanalytic Association in Denver, he read a paper entitled Schreiber and Freud, which caused a New York analyst in the audience named Leonard Shengold to rise and say, I've never heard of this man, but he's a fine. Canada has sent us a national treasure. Hey, Renison, I'm going to come to you first about this. I mean, this is obviously a piece, uh, I would say, it's obviously a piece of non-fiction. I'll give you that. It is a piece of non-fiction. What was your reaction to this? Um, I think it's a good opening. Um, I was immediately intrigued by the line, he draws a certain perplexed attention to himself, uh, which is just a weird way of describing somebody. Um, I was like, what, is, what do they mean by that? So my mind immediately sort of went um, haywire. And of course, we get this really um, strong character depiction of this charismatic analyst. But I have to say that in comparison to the first piece, which just opened me up and immediately made me feel kind of engaged and really intrigued by it, I felt a kind of coldness reading this, um, a, a sort of detachment. Uh, so in the sense that he's an analyst, but there's a real analytical way as well in the way it's it's it um the story unfolds. Uh, it has a coldness in the writing. So I was really struck by that. 
Well, you, you've said something, you've used a word that is absolutely spot on in a, in a certain sense. Um, Helen, I know you know what this piece is because it comes from a fairly kind of famous piece of New Yorker writing. Don't, don't tell us just yet, but what's your sort of take on this? I was, I mean, my, no, my notes on this include the second sentence I've written. This is one long ass sentence right here. And it's kind of clanking. I think um, the, the word you used right, in clinical is exactly right. When I was making my notes about what, you know, what adjectives I would use to describe this, I said, you know, fastidious, omniscient, cerebral. And it is, it's, it's so garlanded with seriousness. And that New Yorker kind of writing style where it's almost like the intro is... So, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I spend a lot of time on my intros because I think they're kind of key to the whole piece. But there's almost a rejection of the idea that you should make the intro too interesting like that's almost like letting the reader off you know if you have kind of last night I dreamed I was at Manderley again or it was the day my grandmother exploded that's sort of cheating it should be kind of on the 21st of September at a small house on 75th street New York you know that you should just bludgeon people with facts and that's really kind of what I got with this but you know and when you get that list of psychoanalysts none of whom you or I or probably even people at the time had ever heard of it's a kind of an incantation that's supposed to be like here you are in the realm of things that have been fact-checked you know this is this is stuff that really happened don't you think it's interesting though because that that American journalism style of opening a piece of non-fiction writing with incredible specificity but there's also these strange phrases like uh, a young man named Jeffrey Maseyev Masson began to appear there's a, that is a fairy tale opening. That yeah, she's you, you kind think, of conjured well, a, him into existence. Well, what a strange way to think that he he sort of magically, he sort of you know he he's a sort of <laughs> emanation or something. Uh, there's a there's a sort of element of that to that. But all of it's to to one end, and I think that's one of the things that's interesting is to ask what the writer is trying to do here, and what the writer here is trying to do is give you the sense of both that this person is famous or on the cusp of fame. You know, the photographs that were presently to appear in the Times Newsweek. You know, this is somebody on the cusp of their big break, but also to very subtly poison you against him from the start. And this is the bit I think that people find a bit. Uh, controversial uh, in non-fiction writing where it, where you adopt this pose of omniscient just dispenser of the facts but you have these lines like you know that even those who disliked him from the start were grudgingly impressed by so already we're getting the sense that this guy's a bit too good to be true and and I think that is a very subtle thing that this piece that does it, it, it purports just to give you a portrait of this man but already you're getting the sense there's something something's not quite right here um, what do you make both make of these these strings of adjectives? Lively, inquisitive, brash, very talkative, anything but cowed. She piles these adjectives up. Irenison. Yeah, you're kind of bombarded with them, and it's just a little bit too much. And similarly to Helen, um, unfortunately, I just took a disliking to this character. <laughs> uh, the way he's kind of um almost described as a, an aberration. You talk about him appearing. Um, he's just pedestaled a little bit too much for my liking. So uh, I found myself wanting to hear about aspects of a downfall i know that sounds um probably quite mean to say um, but, I, but i think just, that is that is as helen said part of what the writer is is working to setting you at up this point i mean helen you 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 know who it is it's um it's uh, Janet it's Malcolm. Janet Malcolm. Yeah, Janet Malcolm's in the Freud archives, um, which is a piece that's kind of fascinating to me because, in fact, what happened is that Geoffrey Masson sued her over a couple of phrases in this, one of which I think he described himself as being a bit like a gigolo. Um, he, the, the story is basically that he kind of wangled himself into the confidence of people who maintain these archives. So she's 
sort of depicting him as a kind of high-class con man, really. So that's the idea, is to see the prestige of how it is that he manages to get all these people just to accept him into their lives in this kind of talented Mr Ripley's fashion. But I thought um, the thing that amuses me about this is she wrote a piece uh, very recently in the New York Review of Books called The Second Chance that was about the libel trial in which she contested this like New Yorker style of writing. where She said the idea was to be reticent, self-deprecating, and maybe here and there funny, but to always keep a low profile, in contrast to the rather high one of the persona in which we wrote. And I thought that was a really interesting reckoning with this form of, I think, this is classic 20th century American journalism, where it is your demanding the opinion to you are the one who decides what the world is like you know you are the unquestioned omniscient narrator of life and and I think that feels so out of touch now the idea that you know the group of writers at the New Yorker or whatever it might be might get to kind of declare what reality is but this has really got that that tang of it which I'm not sure you get I don't think I I couldn't write like this now because it would feel too much like I was asserting you know and all the identities that I carry white British middle class like this is reality this is my view of the world and it it is not to be questioned and I thought it's interesting that Janet Malcolm herself has ended up coming to that conclusion too. Irenison what do you make of these the um, brackets in that top paragraph Masson to continue the metaphor seems to almost betray an anxiety about having used the metaphor at all. I don't see why she says it. Yeah, it's it's intriguing that that they've done that actually. Um for me, I guess it continues to have this this element of um secrecy within it as well. So as we get to know more about this character, um it again I think implies a certain sense of foreboding so he's almost built up in this omniscient way but there are kind of little clues that you latch onto as a reader that 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 there are some red flags here and I think the bracketing um, is probably one of those or that's how I read it or interpreted it. Uh, Helen if you were editing this would you take out that parenthesis what's it doing there? I, I highlighted it as, you know, you just do the metaphor. Why say, oh, hello, lads, I'm doing a metaphor. It seems a very strange thing to, to, to be self-referential in that way. But I agree with you. I think in a way it's, it's I mean, I love using brackets and, I, you know, I use far too many of them because they're like a little aside. They restore a kind of conversationality to what can otherwise be very factual writing, you know, and they're, they're the place to put little jokes and, and stuff like that. So... Most of the time I like her brackets, but that one I just, I would have put my pen through as, you know, in the words of Yoda, do or do not, there is no try. (laughs) Well, you're right, because the brackets later on, uh, there's a later bracket and felt compelled to add. She was smart as a whip. Mm. That felt compelled to add is a little lean on the scales, isn't it? Because you think that's a very strange way of saying that. He just added it. You know, why did he feel compelled to add? And then she has the other one. while other candidates were still copying out exercises with inky fingers, um, which is absolutely leaning on the scales because you think, no, you know, they were just working away like everybody else. But she does feel it's almost as though she feels a, a freedom within the brackets to comment a little more than she does in the main text. Mm. Right. Time for the final uh, piece. This, I will tell you, is from a short story, the opening of a short story. One day in August, in a quiet little suburb, hot with cars and zoned for parks, I, Charles C. Charlie, met a girl named Cindy. There were lots of Cindy's strolling in the woods that afternoon, but mine was a real citizen with yellow hair that never curled. It hung. 
When I came across her, she had left the woods to lie around her father's attic. She rested on an army cot, her head on no pillow, smoking a cigarette that stood straight up, a dreamy funnel. Ashes fell gently to her chest, which was relatively new, covered by Dacron and Egyptian cotton, and waiting to be popular. I had just installed an air conditioner, 20% off and late in the season. That's how I make a living. I bring ease to noxious kitchens and fuming bedrooms. People who have tried to live by cross-ventilation alone have thanked me. On the first floor, the system was in working order, absolutely perfect and guaranteed. Upstairs, under a low, unfinished ceiling, that Cindy lay in the deadest centre of an August day. Her forehead was damp, mouth slightly open between drags, a furious and sweaty face, hardly made up except around the eyes, but certainly cared for. Cheeks scrubbed and eyebrows brushed a lifetime's deposit of vitamins, the shiny daughter of cash in the bank. Aren't you hot? I inquired. Boiling, she said. Ah, come on, little one, I said. Don't be grouchy. What's it to you? she asked. I took her cigarette and killed it between my forefinger and thumb. Then she looked at me and saw me for what I was. Not an ordinary union brother, but a perfectly comfortable way to spend five minutes. What's going on here? I absolutely love this piece of writing. <laughs> I loved it. OK, so let's start off with the with the opening. Um, even just the one day, there is something, there's a comfort in it. You know, that, that those two words preface so many great passages. So immediately you're kind of at ease as a reader that this is going to unfold beautifully. Um, and it's not an opening that necessarily fizzes with excitement. It's measured but and it's evocative uh, and it makes you want to read on. And I just love the specificity in some of the imagery, like the detail of it. So smoking a cigarette that stood straight up, a dreamy funnel. I just really like that image and it just sort of stayed with me. Um, also, I think the fact that it's in first person, you're immediately, there's an immediate sense of intimacy about this piece. You know, you're immediately kind of drawn in. Um, so I really like that about it. Um, I also love the flashes of humour. Um, so people who have tried to live by cross ventilation alone, have thanked me. I mean, I, I just chuckled at that. I just found it um, just quite a funny line in the piece. But but yeah, it's doing lots of things right for me. Um, it, it sort of unfolds um, quite slowly, but there are lots of details that you can grab onto as a reader and you want to know more about these two characters, um, Charles C. Charlie and Cindy, because um, it, it, it's set up so brilliantly. So already I'm just like, oh, give me more. It's brilliant. Um, I think I was won over by in a quiet little suburb hot with cars and zoned for parks. Does that mean it's, you know, it's full of traffic? It, does, it isn't quite that. Uh, because zoned for parks takes you away from that. You know you're in the suburbs. And so I got from hot with cars and zoned for parks just this very vivid image of sunshine coming off car windows uh, and chrome, you know, in an American town because zoned for parks is American. And it's it's intensely there. And there's only about seven words there. But it's such a, an unusual phrase as well. Helen, what did you think? 
Yeah, I love that half rhyme of the fact that it's it's using the vowels of hot and zoned and cars and parks to give you that echo. It really makes that work. There was so many, so much weirdness in this first paragraph that I... So Charles C. Charlie is a kind of obviously absurd name, which is like, what is his middle name Charles as well? Like, what happened in this family? Um uh, which, but it, but it is that I, I mean, I felt this felt very American from the start. Did you get that feeling that it has a sort of noir feel to it? I don't know whether you got that. I got it because you know there are so many noir films in which a workman, you know, encounters a femme fatale, and mm. the and the temperature is steamy. Uh, maybe that's why I went. No, I did get sultry. Was one of my my notes for for what the adjectives I would kind of use to and and the, and the way of using that. Is it the pathetic fallacy? Yeah, of using the kind of the the weather as a metaphor for everyone's emotional state, right? Which it does very nicely. It's a very very hot day, and everybody is pretty hot themselves. But there are some really weird. Um, her head on no pillow is a very odd way of saying she didn't have there's no you know it, it, it putting it in the negative like that is, is a fascinating way to do it um and then the bit about her chest waiting to be popular is pervy in a br- in a brilliantly understated way um which gives you that kind of she's just on the cusp of kind of becoming incredibly sexually attractive and and, and that's I, th- I thought that was incredibly and like you I also loved the um tried to live by cross-ventilation alone. and Because it's a biblical echo, right? It's man cannot live on bread alone. And it's an unusual reference to get in a passage that is otherwise so very modern-sounding, to suddenly get this biblical echo. Yeah, well, and also to think about um, air conditioning supply in biblical terms um, <laughs> is weird. I mean, just going back to that um, line, ashes fell gently to her chest, which was relatively new, covered by dacron and Egyptian cotton, and waiting to be popular. It's, it's such a wonderful line, that. Um, and as you say, absolutely, um, slightly pervy. But these, again, the specificity of Dacron, um, which takes you bang to a kind of particular um, time and place. Um, you get those descriptions later, don't you, Renison, um, when he talks about her hardly made up except around the eyes, but certainly cared for, cheeks scrubbed and eyebrows brushed, a lifetime's deposit of vitamins, the shiny daughter of cash in the bank. Yeah, no, it's a great description and obviously um, uh, signifies this is a a woman who's quite from a well-off family or well-off background. Um, But just to touch on your point about um, the noirish feel, um, I think you're right about that because the the way in which she's described as well, I think speaks to that. So he describes Cindy with a a furious and sweaty face. And that actually does make me think of um, noir films um, because it's such a it's such an unfeminine and unsentimental description that I was I was just kind of struck by it and again struck by the the realness of it um but also like you feel this tension already I don't know if you guys felt that but you feel this tension building already between these two characters and you're kind of pulled along by it which I thought was a very very clever element to have within the piece you said it's um not feminine do you think it's a, a male writer or a woman writer I, I would go for a male writer, Helen. Yeah, I I, I think male as well. Uh, right, I'm going to I'm going to tell you who it is. It's Grace Paley. Mm, and, uh, goodness. <laughs> and curi- and just by chance, one of the things on my copy of Grace Paley, uh, she's a wonderful story writer, Grace Paley. Um, but one of the the kind of um, cover quotes on the back is from Philip Roth, um, and he writes about her. 
as um, having an understanding of loneliness, lust, selfishness and fatigue that is splendidly comic and unladylike is the word that he used. <laughs> it's un- cause I, interesting because I had thought Philip, Philip Roth would have been in my frame for who this, like what kind of writing I was thinking of. And I think you're right about the noirishness and looking back at it, I think there's some of the phrases that do that to you. Like mine was a real citizen with yellow hair. That's a really odd and very historically specific um, one. And the bit about that she looked to me for what I was, not an ordin- ordinary union brother. Like those are the the bits of vocabulary. They're not quite. It was a two bit dime bar on the fifth, but like they're <laughs> just on the cusp of that. I mean, the other interesting thing about it, given the the setup in this story, is that Paley absolutely thought of herself as a feminist writer. I mean, you, um, I thought of you when I saw this. Paley said, "I was a woman writing at the early moment when small drops of worried resentment and noble rage were secretly slowly building." into the second wave of the women's movement. And so all of her stories are absolutely kind of concerned with what happens to women and, and, and you know, the, the ways in which they are constrained. Um, but I don't think you, you could tell it from the style of the writing. It never grandstands it. No, which is exactly what I want from my feminist writers, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I wrote this ages ago, but like the one thing I want is just to have as much interest in female characters as male ones. And, and that also includes showing all the ways in which they can be bad and manipulative and, you know, that full range. They can be lots of different things on different days. That's, that, to me, is what feminist writing is. It's finding women as interesting as men. Not, as you say, not kind of... And, and a story in which someone is manipulative like this potentially, but also, you know, are they a victim? Are they, you know, are they a manipulator? Is really interesting. Exactly the kind of thing that I, I think that the second wave was really interested in. Um, and how much responsibility women should have to take for themselves uh, and the situations they're in is a, is a blistering feminist argument to this day. So, again, yeah, like like Renison, I, I I probably wouldn't have read a story called Irrevocable Diameter. If I'm honest with you, that is a bit of a bit of a warning sign to me. But I, I like this a lot. Yeah, well, she's um, I do recommend her. She's fantastic, Grace Paley. Um, well, thank you very much indeed. Um, I love doing that. And um, thank you for thank you for doing it. Thank you. That was so much fun. OK, well, thank you very much. That's it for this first edition of Line by Line. My thanks to my two guests, Helen Lewis and Irenison Okojie, for starting the ball rolling by talking about beginnings. Our next episode will feature the novelists Naomi Alderman and Philip Henscher. And if you don't want to miss it, subscribe now where you got this podcast. If you think other people might not want to miss it, please tell them about it. You can also contact me if you have comments or suggestions on Twitter. I'm at TDS153. Line by Line was produced by Ben Tullo and the readings were by Deli Sigal. Music by D. Yan Ki. Until next time, goodbye and keep reading the small print.